Given the lyrics in that song, it might be good just to pause. Pause for a moment and think about how sweet it is to be loved by Jesus. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Lord, help us to embrace and embody how sweet that is and how sweet that can be for the world around us. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Scripture reading this morning, uh, Revelation chapter 3, if you're working with the blue Bibles that are in the pew, in the rack there, page 1139, Revelation chapter 3, the sixth letter of the seven letters to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Revelation 3, 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, says Jesus. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them to come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Those who are victorious, those who overcome, I will make pillars in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These letters have taken us sort of into life in the first century, Uh, life after Jesus, life after the apostles, and sort of what it was like a little bit for the early church. What was the situation in which they found themselves? If you were to do a little investigation, you would discover that in the first four centuries of the existence of the church, as we know it, the followers of Jesus, The growth in the church, though it started out very slow, uh, became almost to the point of the phrase we use a lot today when it comes to numbers and math and projections, it would almost be able to be labeled exponential. And so it's been interesting for me the last few years to kind of dig in a little bit and discover what was it that made the church grow? What was it that caused the church to grow, especially given that uh, growing a church in that day and age wasn't exactly the easiest thing to do? Um, a couple of places I've come across the phrase, why would anybody become a Christian? 
in the first century. Why would anybody become a follower of Jesus? Well, life was tough, and we've talked a little bit about that. And one author, his name is Alan Crider, in his book, The Patient, Patient Ferment of the Early Church, says this, there were good reasons not to become a Christian. Disincentives were very strong. If you became a Christian, you could be gossiped about, be made sport of by your workmates, get in trouble with your master, be suspect to your neighbors. At times, becoming a believer could get you jailed, could get you sent to the mines, or even killed. And there was a excessive variety of other religion, religious options to choose from. There were public cults, family cults, private cults, healing cults, and oracles. These were sufficiently satisfying to most of the people that they didn't look any farther. Most people didn't become Christians. So there's a lot going against the early church. But as I discovered, there was also significant growth. The first slide um, shows sort of a little bit of the numbers and, and their estimates and their guesses from historians and archaeologists and so on. But by the end of the first century, there's estimated to be 10 to 20,000 Christians in the whole area, in um, Jerusalem, Judea, uh, what we know as Asia Minor, probably by the end of the first century, by the end when these letters are written, about ten to 20,000. Now, I know that might surprise some of you a little bit, because you'll say, well, weren't there thousands of people converted in the book of Acts? But don't forget the mortality rate. Don't forget the shortness of life in the first century. Probably um, given, given child mortality rates as well. Um, that, that, that's a conservative number, but it's... Uh, it, it makes sense of the context of the first century. By the end of the second century, estimates are about 200,000 followers of Jesus. And by the time we get to the, the third century, the, into the fourth century, five to six million. So, so you're kind of going along and all of a sudden you, you see this, uh, this growth. Another way to look at it, uh, more visually with a map. Next slide, Justin. So you've got by 250 AD, the spread of Christianity and some of the familiar territories, right? Jerusalem along the Mediterranean coast up into what we know as Turkey, and then a little bit after that, it's down to Alexandria in Egypt, over to Carthage. Interesting, isn't it? That whole North African thing as, as a focus of Christianity in the early years. And I mean, even if you follow the flow of the church, right, and, and you look at where the church was dominant and where the church was strong, and then into Europe, as happened about 400 AD, the, the spread... And then you look at those areas now and you say, where's the gospel, right? It's, it's interesting. And there, that, that trend continues because now the trend is back to the global south, right? It's gone from Europe and North America and, and the dominant trends in, in faith and followers of Jesus is in what's called the global south. That was a sidebar. But it's interesting to see the trend and understand the trends. But here in, in the first century to, to the fourth century, uh, the growth in the church uh, next slide. Another way it was described. The growth of the early church by 100 AD, there were maybe 100 communities of Christians. By 200 AD, there were 200 to 400 sites where people met to worship and, uh, and express their faith. By the early 3rd century, Tertullian, one of the early big four in church history, uh, Tertullian, Justin, Origen, and Irenaeus, by the early 3rd century, Tertullian good evangelical, kind of speaks a little bit uh, exaggeratedly, right? Claimed that Christians were numerous and all but the majority in every city. So there's probably that element of exaggeration, but in the, in the same time, 
the numbers and the, and the statistics would indicate that uh, the spread of Christianity had taken on profound, profound significance. And so we go to our last picture, and here's again another way of looking at it. Uh, purple is up to about uh, the end of the second century, where sort of the base of Christianity was, and the green becomes Christianity up to the time of Constantine. So you've got this incredible development, this incredible expansion in the face of all that kind of opposition and starting out from, from a group of 12 people and then 500 who saw Jesus risen from the dead. How did this happen? In the face of this opposition, in the face of persecution, how did this happen? Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit is a big part of that, and that's what the book of Acts is reminding us, that the Holy Spirit is the one that continued the works and the words that Jesus began. But what happens in the early church, and what happens to sort of fuel this expansion, is that their faith was embodied in their lives, and their faith emboldened their lives to live for Jesus. Uh, Professor Kreider describes it as patient endurance. And, and how does that connect with our letter to the church at Philadelphia? Well, in verse 10, in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 3, actually that phrase is used to describe uh, what God is asking for the church in Philadelphia. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently. And so this patient endurance, this patience, they lived out their life and let God, if you will, take care of the rest. Their patience that trusted God, their patience that was rooted in the character of God, who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Their patience that was modeled in Jesus. If you want to understand the patience of Jesus, do a little study on the disciples. And put yourself in Jesus' shoes and ask yourself, how would you handle some of that stuff that the disciples threw at Jesus? And so there's this example in the life of Jesus that the church picks up and they model the patience and the patient endurance of Jesus. They, the incarnation of God becoming flesh now becomes incarnate in them. And through that, God draws people to themselves. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because they didn't preach about missions. They didn't preach about going out into all the world and preach the gospel. In, in those original four guys I talked about, Origen, Justin, Tertullian, and Irenaeus, you don't find sermons about being a missionary. There's nothing about a great commission. It, it just that wasn't part of their preaching. That wasn't part of their um, part of their focus. They didn't send out missionaries. Now, mind you, there's all kinds of, especially in the north part of the Mediterranean, there from from Spain to Italy and back over to Jerusalem. There is incredible mobility, thanks to the Romans. And thanks to the Romans building these roads that connected their empire, that helped them keep control over their empire, there's all kinds of mobility. There's all kinds of itinerant uh, preachers and prophets kind of moving around from church to church when they hear about a, a house church in one city. And so you've got this circular thing with these letters to the churches in Revelation. So you've got lots of communication and incredible mobility, but they're not sending out missionaries. That might surprise you. They didn't talk about going into all the world and preaching the gospel. That might not be what you expect. Neither did they let people come to church if they just wanted to come to church. You just can find out where the local house church was and where the local group of the followers of Jesus were and come knocking on the door and say, can I come in on this first day of the week morning worship? You couldn't. 
they uh, basically had closed services. What they Part of the reason for that was because of what I read in Kreider's quote there about um, they were, sus they were um, suspect in every way, and they weren't sure if somebody was spying on You've probably heard stories like that with the persecuted church around the world, right? You'd, they're, they're trying to find out, are you followers of Jesus? If you are, here's what's going to happen to you. And so they had kind of a closed-door worship service. They didn't admit people too quickly for fear of compromising their attractiveness. They didn't admit to people people too quickly for fear of, of uh, the, the local rulers coming in and just shutting everything down. It would take two to three years of training, two to three years of, of Christian formation, two to three years of understanding who Jesus is and how he lived before you could be baptized. And once you were baptized, you could have your first communion, Lord's Supper service with the rest of the congregation. But up until that point, uh, you were separated somewhat. So it, it was a two or three year training. Well, and that makes sense, right? Because if, if the majority of people, once you get out of Jerusalem, and sure you've got Jews that have dispersed around and been forced to disperse around, but most of those Gentiles know nothing about the Old Testament. They know nothing about Jesus. They know nothing about the fulfillment of prophecy. They need to be brought along to understand the seven-mile story, if you will. So, so two to three years of, we would call it catechism. Two to three years of understanding who Jesus is and understanding how Jesus lived so that they could live like Jesus, because that's what was attracting them to the church in the first place, these other people who were living like Jesus. What kind of training did they need? Well, they would need training in the scriptures, as Paul says to Timothy, the scriptures that make us wise unto salvation. They would need training in the way of life of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They would need training in relationship to what it means to embody the witness of Jesus, to behave like Jesus. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage over here, when, when uh, Christianity was very strong in North Africa uh, in the th into the third century, uh, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, said this, We do not preach great things, we live them. We do not preach great things, we live them. So this embodied witness was, was significant. Um, Kreider again says, The church's growth was the product not of Christians' persuasive powers, but of their convincing lifestyle. And historically, that's not... That's not uncommon. And what earlier historians had said about the early church, uh, Henry Chadwick, uh, a previous historian long before Kreider came along, said the practical application of charity or love was probably the most potent single cause of Christian success. So you've got this feeling like there's, there's something happening against all the odds, right? And it's, it's the followers of Jesus embodying the life of Jesus, not even talking about Jesus. As Cyprian said, we do not preach great things, we live them. It's kind of, for those of you who've been around as long as I have, it's kind of like that old song we used to sing. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in you. That, that's a good heading for what seems to be happening in the first few centuries of the church and how it grew and how it came to be so, such a significant force in the Roman Empire. Well, how did it manifest itself? How did this life of Jesus be demonstrated? 
How was it demonstrated in the life of the early church? And as I, I've been doing some digging at this, it's almost like the early church were like what we call first responders. And it's like they were conditioned to be first responders. What is it we know about first responders? We're coming up on the anniversary of the Humboldt uh, accident, not that far away. And I, I know we don't want to forget the significance of it. What is, what is it about first responders? They are trained to go, right? They're, they're trained to move to where the trouble is, to move to where the problem is, to move to where the crisis is. They're, they're trained, they're conditioned, their mindset is about going. And what are the rest of us doing? Most of us are running. Most of us are trained to run. That's just kind of basic human conditioning, isn't it? But it's like the early church. It's like the people, the followers of Jesus in the first century were like Condition like our first responders to go into the into the fire, to go into the crisis, to go into the trouble. They did not recoil from hardship and suffering. Hmm, who does that sound like? Sounds to me like Jesus. They loved their neighbors as they loved themselves. They were willing to die. And so you would find the early church is known for caring for the sick and caring for the poor. They would go to the crisis, not away from it, as Jesus taught. And when it came to famine, when it came to plagues, epidemics or pandemics, whatever health word you want to put on it, right? They move into it. When it came to earthquakes, and there was a lot of them in the area around Turkey. In fact, the city of Philadelphia um, and Sardis back in, I think it was 17 AD, there was an incredible earthquake that just wiped out the cities. Um, so earthquakes were common. Um, the early church was known for taking care of prisoners. Who cared about prisoners? The only, there, there weren't activists. There weren't activists in the Roman Empire. There weren't humanitarians in the Roman Empire. That's not, that's not the way of life in the first century. Who took care of the prisoners? Who cared about the prisoners? The early church did. And so that's why you get those little snippets every so often. Hebrews chapter 13, remember those who are in prison. We just kind of glide right by it, right? <laughs> they didn't. Because that's maybe their people. Bloodline people. People they know, or bloodline people through the early church. Took care of prisoners. They took care of orphans. It's the early church that went out, and as far as I understand it, they actually went on patrols to see where babies been exposed to die. And they would, if they were alive, try to recover them and, and um, keep them alive. And now they got to take care of them. Right? So widows and orphans become a big part of the early church. And as you read the accounts, it, it's just more and more, right? The, the, the first responder idea just kind of strikes me. That, that, was, that was how they went. That was how they saw the world. That, that was their, their frame of reference because that's, that's how Jesus lived. Came to seek and to save the lost. And they just did it, it seems, by living out the life of Jesus. Now, there's three things as we sort of come to the close of Sunday ministry here and one Sunday to go. And, and last week we talked about repentance and just kind of having a clean start, the importance of a clean start, especially with a new pastor coming. 
and there's today, and then there's next week we're talking about the Holy Spirit. But there's something about today that, that seems to me just so relevant for Esteban, because what if I said 2030? Fast power, end of coal-fired power plants. What if? So, so what's in store for Esteban? What's life like? And price of oil just dropped, what? Five, almost $5 a barrel U.S., right? What's in store for Esteban with oil patch? Is Esteban in a situation, is Esteban in a situation where there is an opportunity for the followers of Jesus to be Jesus for the people in this area? Is there economic hardship? Has there been economic hardship? Is there going to be economic hardship? And Esteban Alliance, from the very moment I was here, I knew you cared because there was a community care committee. But I hope we don't think a community care committee can do it all. And I hope we don't think that just because we have a community care committee, we're doing it all. Is it possible? Is it possible? Man, I sound like a lawyer. I watch too much Law and Order. <laughs> Is it possible that there's a need out there that isn't being met and the followers of Jesus in Esteban Alliance Church can meet it? Is it possible there's a gap out there and people are falling through the gap and that people in Esteban Alliance Church as followers of Jesus could meet it? Now, I'm not saying... I love our vision statement. I think it's a great vision statement. I think it's kind of a trend-setting vision statement just because it uses the idea of revealing. To embrace and reveal God and his son, Jesus. I mean, I, I just think that ever since I heard it, I think it, it's a great... Well, how did the early church reveal Jesus? How did they show people what Jesus is like and who Jesus was? I go back to what Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, said. We do not preach great things, we live them. So what are we depending on to reveal... The, the people in Esteban and area who Jesus is. And I'm not saying flip everything and all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's all about taking care of the poor and the widows and the orphans and all that. And, and I still say that's, that's biblical stuff to do. But I'm saying, isn't there room? Isn't there room to do more? For the right reasons. Find a need and meet it. Find a gap and fill it for the right reasons. Right? right? The church in Philadelphia, what do we know Philadelphia as? Well, ever since the Philadelphia Flyers, it's been the Broad Street Bullies, but city of brotherly love, right? That's the idea of Philadelphia. So there's this undercurrent in the name of the city, but interestingly enough, the city changed its name a couple times. They weren't quite happy with the name Philadelphia, and a couple times in the first century, they changed their name as more of a a way of honoring the emperor. And so they lost that, that, lost that distinction. But within the church, right, there, there's this new family feel. Within the church of Jesus Christ, when you become a follower of Jesus, what do you become? You become a brother or a sister, right? And there's a whole new feel. So, so you think of these people that are becoming followers of Jesus, and they want to become followers of Jesus, and as they learn to be followers of Jesus, what's, what's the feeling? The feeling is family. The feeling is security and belonging. 
They feel like here I am with a group of people where there's no discrimination between word and deed, and there's no discrimination between people. What they experienced in the church was a leveling of society that went totally different from the society. They're used to a Roman vertical society of status, and you're either the elite or you're not. To where the playing field is leveled, and you are, we are all brothers and sisters. And how did they get all that? Well, they got all that from learning about Jesus. And again, the letter begins with the introduction of who Jesus is. These are the words of him who is holy and true. Jesus is holy and true. Jesus holds the key of David. And he opens doors that no one can shut. The key of David as opposed to the uh, synagogue of Satan, right? So, so Jesus as the Messiah, he's, he's reminding his followers that, yes, you find yourself in the midst of the synagogue of Satan and Jewish opposition, but Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised ruler. Jesus is the one who is sovereign, who opens and shuts what he wants to open and shut. And so what Jesus knows about them is, well, this is only one of two churches that doesn't get corrected. This is only one of two churches with no condemnation and no correction. On the chart, you see the other, the other church. Smyrna is the other church. That, that There's no corrective. There's no realignment. You guys need to sort things out. Philadelphia and Smyrna are the two churches with no corrective. Now, the phrase in the, in the letter to the church at Philadelphia, you have little strength. Is that good news or is that bad news? Well, everything else around it is positive. It seems like there's no reason to take it as a corrective that they should have more strength. It, it's, it's just sort of their situation. You have little strength. But in the, in, with that little strength, they are able to, to be faithful. They are able to hold on. They are able to maintain their testimony uh, against the opposition, against the persecution. It was interesting driving down yesterday. Um, we have Sirius XM on the car, and so every so often I flip to the Elvis station. And they played an Elvis song. I'd never heard this Elvis song yesterday, but it's called Only the Strong Survive. That reflect more of how we think and how the world thinks as opposed to what, what's being said here in the letter to Philadelphia. You have little strength, and that's okay. And that's okay. You see, most of the church, and so you got the church, the weak church, and you got the poor church. You got two churches, the weak and the poor, and both of them, they get no corrective. They get, their, their, if this is a report card, they get an A. I think that kind of goes against what we think an A church, an A-list church looks like. The poor church and the weak church. Tertullian, one of these early church leaders, notes that it was the Christian community's response to the poor among them, the prompted outsiders. It was outsiders who were saying, look how much they love each other. And so the church of Philadelphia, they don't, they don't need to bulk up. They don't need to work out. They're okay. They don't need to go in any kind of new training. They're good. You have little strength. And now what they're called to do is to endure, endure patiently. To continue to keep his word. Just as they've kept his word, he will keep them. 
Verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. So there's some intense persecution. And, and as we look forward in, in, the, in the scheme of uh, God's plan for the future and the return of Jesus, it seems to be some sort of global persecution and some global testing that, that is going to come down the road before, before Jesus returns. I will also keep you from the outcry that's going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Interesting, though, isn't it? Smyrna, we go back to the slide, Justin, for a minute. Smyrna gets told they will not be protected. They're going to have to endure it. They're going to have to go through it. Some of them may even die. Philadelphia, they're told God's going to keep them from it. That's just interesting to me, right? What happens to one Christian doesn't happen to another Christian, and what the things one has to go through and the other doesn't have. It reminds me of the story when Jesus uh, is with Peter at the end of the Gospel of John in John chapter 21, and Jesus and Peter are talking, and Jesus telling Peter sort of what his life is going to look like, and Peter, Peter says about, about John, well, what about him? And Jesus says, what's that to you? But it's two very different lives. But again, we'll talk a little more about the other churches next week, but I think it's important today to just remember that the two churches, uh, the two A-list churches, in, in terms of how God looks at them, are the poor church and the weak church. And so, Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia, in verse 11, is told to hold on. Hold on to what you have. That sounds familiar. That's what was told to the church in Thyatira. And the one who overcomes, the one who is victorious... And then there's the promises that come, uh, promises that relate to being in the presence of God, promises that relate to being a child of God, promises that relate to being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and all the benefits that come from that. To the one who overcomes, how do you overcome? How do you overcome? How did Jesus overcome? Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Just turn over. A page or two, Revelation chapter 5. How did Jesus overcome? How was Jesus victorious? How was Jesus victorious? Remember, Revelation chapter 5, uh, John sees a scroll, and there's nobody worthy to open the scroll, and then it's, it's an angel is crying out, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll, and then no one? But then, do not weep, verse, nine, verse 5, sorry. Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. And it's seven seals. Then I saw a lamb. That's the only time Jesus is described as a lion. I watch lots of nature shows. I love BBC Earth. I love Richard Attenborough. And I, and I love seeing how God has created things. That's the only time lion is used. After that, in the 15 or so times it's used, it's all about a lamb. What does victorious mean? Well, victorious means, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, drop down. Verse 9, and they sang a song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. How did Jesus overcome? How was Jesus victorious? He gave up his life. He was willing to suffer and die. That's how, that's how Jesus was victorious. Does that sound anything like what it might have been like for the early church? Go over to chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had, been, they had maintained. 
Okay, now over to chapter 12. Chapter 12. The question is, how do we overcome? As we read those letters to the churches and to us in the 21st century, how do we overcome? Revelation 12, 11. They overcame the accuser of the brethren. That's what Revelation 12, 10 is talking about. They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How did they overcome? They lived like Jesus lived. They treated their lives the way Jesus treated his life. They embodied the life of Jesus. And as you read back into the first century church, it was their gathering together in worship that emboldened them in the face of all the opposition, in the face of all the troubles around them. It was their worship as they gathered to worship Jesus from Sunday to Sunday and evenings as, as possible, it was their worship that emboldened them, that energized them to live out that life, even though it may have been their loss of life. So I think, again, there's a lesson for us. I invite the worship team to come as we prepare to uh, sing and, and just... As, as we sing to kind of reflect on what we've heard um, from the Word of God this morning. But I, I think that there's a lesson here in terms of how we deal with our hardship. Because suffering has a lot to do with our empathy and our obedience. As we think about the early church and as we think about how it grew and as we think about patient endurance, and as we think about how what, and what opportunities around Estevan are similar to the opportunities that were around the early church. What would we love to see God do? Not just in Estevan Alliance Church, but in Estevan. And what does it mean for you and I to embody the life of Jesus and to be emboldened to live the way Jesus did?